Welcome to The Sound of the Hound, a podcast about the early days of recorded sound. My name's James Hall. And I'm Dave Holly. And in this series, we look at the technology, the characters and the stories behind the invention of recorded music over 120 years ago. We trace the pioneers. The dreamers. The adventurers. Who risked life and limb in their quest to bring music to the masses. And who embarked on extraordinary feats of daring do in their mission to capture sound. These people ultimately changed the way that we listen and, incidentally, spawned a multi-billion pound industry in the process. Uh, Let's explain a bit about who we are. I'm James Hall. I'm a music journalist and author. And I'm Dave Holly, and I'm a long-time music industry exec. Uh, I used to run Abbey Road Studios, and I'm now a trustee of the EMI Archive Trust. I wouldn't consider either as uh, particularly gramophone geeks. Or phonograph fanatics, no. But, but what we are is obsessed with this extraordinary period of time. Uh, our episodes will feature a range of characters, but one character you'll hear about again and again is a man called Fred Geisberg, who was effectively employee number one in the UK recording industry and opened Britain's first recording studio in Covent Garden in 1898. Yeah, he really was the maestro. Yeah, he was the Steve Jobs of Victorian London. The Simon Cowell with a handlebar moustache. <laughs> So why is this podcast called The Sound of the Hound? Because we're doing it with the help of the EMI Archive Trust, which is a vast music and technology archive based in Hayes. The EMI Trust celebrates the history of recorded sound and the work of the famous EMI group of companies, which include the Foundation Company, the Gramophone Company, and also HMV, his master's voice. Which is why we've named the podcast The Sound of the Hound after Nipper, the dog in the famous HMV logo. This is The Sound of the Hound. Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Sound of the Hound podcast. I'm Dave Holly. I'm James Hall. And today we are with our hero, one of our heroes, Fred Geisberg and his brother Will, who are out trying to record new stars for the nascent gramophone company. And we are with them in spring 1902. Early spring 1902. In Milan. Why are we there? Why are we there? The big beast. Enrico Caruso, a huge name in opera in Italy, is someone they are desperate to record, believing he could provide the breakthrough because uh, the industry hadn't really taken off at this point. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's a... Already well known in Italy. Oh, he's a megastar he's, over he's there. Isn't a he? megastar in Italy. He's he's already uh, made a splash and a dash across Europe. And as of I think Geisberg, Geisberg and Geisberg, Will and Fred go over there in March '02. They have a they have a deadline to try and get him to record. They have no agreement to get him to record, but there is a deadline because in in London in May that year he's coming over to play in Covent Garden he's signed for his first concerts and they want to get the discs pressed and on the market by 14th of May where he starts at Covent Garden so that um people can yeah, yeah. can buy cuz cuz there'll there'll be a huge splash it'll be in the whatever the was the evening standard going then but all the london papers would be would be talking about this new star yeah the well to do music people would be going to see him and this would be a fantastic opportunity for all this publicity to drive sales. It's getting your, it's getting your yeah. new album out in time yeah. for Glastonbury yeah. when, you, when you headline it, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a 360. The, it's, a, it's, it's a 360. It's, it's, it's tying live and recordings together, almost certainly for the first time ever. Ever. We can say yeah. that with certainty, I think. And, and I think he's quite an interesting guy. Can I just do a little bit on Caruso? Mm. I, I, was, I was sort of looking into him. 
Um, he uh, was, um, I think he was 29 years old at this point in 1902. He's not at the top of the game, but he's f- coming up and up and up, fast and fast. Born in Naples, into poverty. Father worked uh, in mechanical engineering, um, I think particularly putting up things like bridges and fountains. He was part of the foot soldiers doing that. And he actually apprenticed Enrico originally to, 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 um, to, to work with him. His mother was um, a street singer in Naples, so I guess a busker. She would go yeah. out and sing. In fact, my wife and I went to Rome earlier this year and an opera singer stood opposite the, um, the restaurant and sang and we all put a few euros in. I so mean, I'm, I'm imagining that's what a street singer yes, did, yeah. did in, in Naples. Possibly not for the tourists, possibly for the locals. Um, but he started as a street singer following his mother's tradition, but he also worked um, in his father's. He was apprenticed to his um, father's industry. And he, um, apparently when he used to return to Naples in late, later life, there was a particular fountain that he would point to that he remembered helping put in. Aww, so he, so he, he, he got his hands dirty for a while, and then he, his, his singing took off. Interesting with poverty, um, age 18, he gets his first money from the street um, singing, what do you do? You buy some flash clothes when you're when you're a rock and roll boy. That's what you do. This is and what, that's exactly I, what he did. I'm thinking about Maradona. He played in Naples. He came from poverty. Yeah, yeah. In the documentary, he he first thing he buys is a fur coat. Absolutely. There you go. Why would you flash? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's very much on his way up. There is a description which I've stolen shamelessly from his Wikipedia page. Um, he was described as a fastidious dresser. He took at least two baths a day. And enjoyed good food and convivial company. That sounds like a pretty good recipe for a decent life, doesn't yeah. it? So, cutting back to um, Milan then, in, in the spring of 1902, Fred and Will have arrived. Um, I, guess, I guess Italy was probably one of the homes of singing, in, in, you know, the, the big stars. Absolutely. You, think, you think of all the, the opera, uh, Verdi and Puccini, and it was coming out of Italy at the second half of, well, mid to second half of the 19th century mm-hmm. and there must be a tradition of fantastic singers and um, Caruso was the latest off the production belt. So they, they turned up having um, him on the top of their list but they had problems nailing him down, didn't they? He, um, he was singing at the Scala in Milan at the time Yeah, and they desperately tried lots of different ways to get, to, to get him to sign and he just kind of wouldn't play ball initially, would he? I, th- I think... Isn't there a, a, a sort of a quote from, again, this, we, often many of the quotes we, we, we use are from Fred's diaries, Fred Geisberg's diaries, but they're not always 100% accurate, but they're fantastic at giving colour. Exactly. Well, they were written decades after the event, yeah. weren't they? But um, So they have these two, the, the, these brothers called the Michaelis brothers, rather like the Mitchell brothers, I imagine, who, who are their people in Italy. And Fred turned to the one, the Michaelis, and said, find out. Caruso's fee we want 10 songs and he wrote in his diary this he said we had to run the gauntlet of all sorts of of obstructions by those surrounding the good-natured and accessible singer there were many hangers-on present and each had a word to say or obstructions to raise just as we were on the point of coming to an agreement which which is has made me smile because I I used to run Abbey Road Studios and often had big stars in working who were all, I've, I've never had anything less than a friendly, professional, respectful interaction with them. But several of them would have 
entourages that, 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 that weren't so respectful. And um, it was always the obstructions to getting things done was dealing with the people around him. And it looks like even back yeah. in these days, Fred was having that problem. Nothing has changed. It's the same with, with interviews and PRs at the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, they surround themselves with kind of you know, um, an ecosystem of, of, of protection. And actually, once you get to the core, once you get to the, the star, they're lovely. Yeah. They'll do whatever, you know, they're, they're very happy to chat about anything. Yeah. But it's these people, yeah, it's the Around kind of... The, it's, yes. or, do you, uh, James, you do, you do you know, many interviews. With yeah. Do you, do you tend to have the PR sitting in the room with it? Yes, I, got, I, I, interviewed, <laughs> I interviewed one famous American... Can I say who it is? Probably not. Um, and his PR cut the photo, cut, just cut the line off because I asked what she deemed to be a cheeky question, yeah. and this guy thought it was rather amusing. But she, yeah. So um, <laughs> yes, but they do listen in and they interject yeah. annoyingly a lot. But there oh, you go. I can't believe it's good because you know back in the days of the music press in in the UK when you had Enemy and Sounds, yeah. and often you would read those articles where they they spouted nonsense or what you know their thoughts. And you could see that the, the journalist just took the utterance and, and created this whole mythology about them that made them so interesting. Yeah. And you often read about people before you'd heard the music, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. back in the 70s or, or whatever. So cutting off that ability for a journalist to, to really get under the skin of someone, I, it just makes everything a bit anodyne. Well, it's, you're right, it's counterproductive, doesn't yeah. it? And it's infuriating. It's short-term. It's short-term. Yeah. So this is, yes, these are the barriers that... Um, that Fred and Will faced back in uh, in 1902. I have to say that that, that I'm, I'm going to slightly take us off on a on, on a on a, um, a slightly different tangent on this because while they're in Milan, they go to La Scala. They later on in the week they they hear Caruso and the lights go on, but they first of all they try to to um, record a performance at La Scala. So there's there's a there's a huge amount of chatting up the the manager of the opera house. They bring in their crates of recording equipment. equipment. Uh, unfortunately, whilst they're talking to one of the the reports of of the managing director of the opera house, the managing director goes down the corridor that these boxes are, are stored in, falls over it, and and kicks them out to, and takes their recording equipment with them. So they fail completely. They completely fail. And then there's a, there's a second story, which is when they're trying to see Caruso. The first time they try and see, see Caruso, a couple of dignitaries have come over from the gramophone company in the UK. So William Barry Owen, who, who's the guy that came over on behalf of Berliner, who owned the gramophone company in America, looking for investors to set up the gramophone company. He's, and he's a director of the gramophone company. And Alfred Clark, who's the managing director of the company, are over with their wives in Milan. In Milan, yeah. And they try unsuccessfully to see Caruso the first time. It's a lovely story because the, the two Italian brothers, the Michaelis brothers, who, who run the Italian franchise for gra- the gramophone company in Italy, what they do, they, they can't get tickets. So they bribe somebody to go into a box. And it's, it's, it's absolutely lovely. So if I could just read this yeah. bit. We arrived and filled every available seat in this box. The overture had just started. We had settled ourselves out for a grand treat when we heard an insistent knock. Michaelis, greatly annoyed, threw open the door. And there stood the proprietor of this box, Baron de Le. It's, it's a blank name. And Bar- his guests. Oh. So the people who were meant to be using the, the box turned, turned up. <laughs> but this is, this is brilliant. So it says, in the real Italian fashion... A tempestuous scene immediately ensued. 
The altercation grew louder and louder as the vestibule quickly filled with attendants, urged on by the disturbed audience to stop the fracas. So they're, 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 it's all kicking off. The Baron wants the, 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 um, the, the he box. He wants his box back. Michaelis, almost humiliated, point out, it points out that his guests were Americans who would carry back a bad impression of Italian manners. But this was to no avail, and we all fi- filed mournfully out of the box. Michaelis then challenged the Baron to a duel. Cards were passed, and my brother Will Geisberg was asked to act as a second for his friend. All that night I remained in company of my very nervous brother, discussing the mode of procedure to be carried out by a second in a duel. However, the next morning, calmer tempers prevailed, and apologies for the misunderstanding were exchanged by both parties, much to the relief of my brother. Fantastic. Game of cat and mouse in the... uh, How brilliant. That reminds me rather of of trying to... (laughs) Trying to see the Rolling Stones at Glastonbury from the side of the stage, we'd managed to get into the compound and we were sort of being chased by security and we sort of literally ducked and weaved around the, around the bowels of the pyramid stage. And we found a spot. We could see them metres away on the stage. And we found ourselves sitting or standing next to um, Jade Jagger, mixed oh, well, yeah. And this massive burly security guard came up and he basically said, right, out, all of you out, and kicked us out into the field where everyone else was. And Jade Jagger says, no, no, no. My dad says I'm allowed to be here. And the security guard goes, and who's your fucking dad? And she points up at stage at Jagger him. and goes, him. <laughs> so she stayed, we left. Oh, I thought she'd... Oh, that's a shame. That yeah, is a yeah, shame. Yeah. But yes, how interesting. How funny. So, 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 so it, it, and, and, and it's interesting to know that Clark and Owen Bowery are in Milan when we come, yes, when we this is, just yes. hold that thought hold that thought yeah, yeah. Um, so, so th- there's a bit of a negotiation then with, with um, Caruso's people through to Caruso through to Caruso and there's about a week where they've got time to kill while these negotiations are happening and Fred and Will decide to go to Rome to try and record the Pope which you may recall from a previous episode anyway they come back to they come back and they they get a deal don't they they do they negotiate with a guy called Maestro Cotone who I suspect is one of Caruso's agents or hangers-on, with a proposal. Caruso will sing 10 songs for £100, all to be recorded in one afternoon. Now, Fred says in his diary, to us in those days, these were staggering terms, given that the record industry hadn't really taken off. Now, I went online, I wanted to know how much £100 was back then. And the Bank of England have got this incredible thing called an inflation calculator. So you put the year in and the figure, and it tells you what that is in today's money so 100 quid then was 12,074 pounds today which doesn't sound too much does it for a morning's for, work yeah for 10 songs so that's 1200 quid a song 10, 10 songs two and a half minutes a song yeah I mean is that is that a lot or is superstar that... yeah it's, it's a bit like those um, supermodels you know in the 80s you used to say <laughs> yes, I don't get I'm out of bed for less than 10,000 exactly and, and, exactly and so I, I guess in that terms it probably was quite a lot of money I suppose and, it was and, and yeah. I guess from an industry which didn't have a lot of sales coming in at the other end you know yeah. it wasn't a huge market for this yet yeah so I suppose it was a huge amount of money in those terms and this is where this interesting part of the story so Fred with this offer he telegra- he telegrams London or telegraphs London doesn't he and says this is a deal Caruso will sing for 100 pounds for 10 songs. And he gets a reply from his bosses in London, doesn't he? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a, a one, two, three, four, five, six words. Fee exorbitant, forbid you to record. Which is pretty black and white, isn't it? Fred said he felt humiliated and hopeless to argue. And 
he thought they don't understand what we've got here. We have yeah. to do this. Fred's on the ground. He's on the ground. The idiots are back in London. In London. The bean counters. Yeah, the bean the counters. The bean counters. And so what does Fred do? He says, all right, let's do it. And he pays him out of his own pocket. Yeah, so he guarantees it himself and goes ahead. It's a, it's a sort of it's a heroic... Re- it's a heroic rebellion, yes. isn't it? And actually, I, I, I have a theory that this is where the modern recording industry properly begins. You've got a superstar, you've got a, a rebel A rebellious A&R man, A&R man exactly. You're, you're sticking one in the eye of the man back at the record industry. Yeah, this and is you're going to create some art. All with big handlebar moustaches and, yeah, and yes, oiled hair. And it turns out to be quite successful. Oh, yes. Because Fred does mention a number somewhere about how much profit. Yes, now this is quite fun. So he, they did their 10 recordings. Yeah. More of which in a minute, actually, because yeah. there's some quite good descriptions. They did press them up in time for May the 14th. And Fred believes that these records made a profit of £15,000, which back in those days... You're going to do the conversion. was a whopping, yeah. ready? Yep. £1.8 million, Yeah, we, we, Which is it's pretty mean, good. You kind of I think mean, nowadays, you know, it's, it's tens of millions. Yes. Know, from a successful recording, but... How many people had a record player in 1902? Exactly. How many people were actually buying records? Yeah. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It's cr- f- f- yeah. That's a return of investment on I don't know what, many, well, many thousands of times, isn't it? 150 so, times. Yeah, there you go. Which is, yeah, 15,000%. Yeah, yeah, not bad. Um, so we're, we're back, it's April 11th the recordings took place. Yeah. Well, it's lovely. The whole, the way he arrives, how the recordings work. Well, he, he arrives... Actually, there's a, they've recorded his his co-star. Yes, Amelia so, Pinto. Amelia Pinto. So, so think back to La Scala when when the Geisbergs and the Michellis and the record execs from England see Caruso for the first time. He's singing in Germania, which I think is the way you pronounce it. And then Pinto is his his co-star. His co-star. So they do her that morning. And then he saunters in. He arrives towards the end of the morning, dressed. This is this is the quote from Fred: dressed like a dandy, twirling a cane. <laughs> Which I just think I just think it's lovely. It's lovely, isn't it? But interestingly enough, you know, we were talking about his entourage. So we barred. Fred says this: we barred from the room his escort of braves, braves, which must be Italian for mates. You know, yeah. With the exception of his accompanist, Maestro Catoni. So the guy ah, so they negotiated with. It was we, his... we thought Fred may be an accompanist. Ah, yes, the pianist. So it's Catoni who he negotiated the, the rate with. And this is what's lovely. Caruso wanted to get the job over quickly as he was anxious to earn that £100 and have his lunch. <laughs> Priorities. But he forgot all about this when he started on the job. And the, so the first record, they're in a hotel, aren't they? They're in a hotel in, in yeah. Milan that they've had. Um, it's called Studenti Udite from Germania, Germania. And Fred was so excited when he recorded this, recorded this that he wrote the Matrix number that he'd already used, big mistake, already used on the Pinto recording on the master for this one. He was obviously just all of a... You all know, of a quiver. This, 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 this is a big recording. This is, <laughs> this is a big star. Possibly the biggest star he's recorded. He then, uh, Caruso, he then sang Questo e Quello from, from Rigoletto. Now, we have that here. Should we listen the, to it? The wonders of modern the science. The wonders of modern science. We should be able to play you so a this bit is of this. Caruso singing Questo e, e, e Quello, um, accompanied by not Fred Geisberg, as we thought, but Maestro Cotone on the piano. 1902. Here we go. <laughs> Oh, 
There you go. I think what a voice, good, isn't it? You come, that comes in that's from, well, well over a century ago. Well, exactly. And years ago. And, uh, what a voice, how powerful. And that is singing without electricity down a horn yeah, yeah. in a Milan hotel room. And I think that's, that's part of what attracted Fred was the power of yeah. that voice. To be able to make. It, was a, it was a good recording voice. It was a very strong voice. And um, so apparently Caruso was a bit of, a, um, bit of an amateur artist. So as he was waiting for the disc to be, yeah. to be changed, he drew a little sketch of Will Geisberg, so Fred's brother, standing by the recording machine and singing into it. And there is, you can see this picture online, yeah. there, is a, there is a wonderful pencil drawing, quite rudimentary, yeah. of the, that basically shows how this recording happened. It's a guy, Will, um, belting out a song into a, into a cone. Yeah, and the, and the, co- the cone, it, it, first of all, it shows you how close to the cone you've got to get. Yes. And then secondly, if you look at the top right-hand corner, yeah. can you see that there's... He's done oh, a version look, of, yes. the, of the of the HMV of the, logo, the logo of the dog and the trumpet. Nip of the dog. So in effect, there's a man talking into a trumpet, and in the background, there's a dog singing seen that. into the trumpet. That's brilliant. So even back in 1902, he's got the gramophone company logo, well, yeah. one of the gramophone company image image slash logo. Oh, brilliant. And they, so the room they were in, they put a curtain down the middle, and it's behind all this that the recording apparatus was. So that Caruso probably couldn't see them as he sang, because I suspect it would have been quite uh, distracting. Yes. Um, so yeah, he was singing. You know, this guy's used to singing in front of hundreds of yeah. people beyond the beyond the lights, and now he's singing to a horn in a curtain. And that that's a completely new skill, isn't it? That yes. They're having to learn now how yeah. to sing to a microphone in an empty room. Yeah. Which of course. Was what all this is what, yeah. But there's, there's a wonderful description, actually. So they're in a, a hotel called the private drawing room on the third floor of the Grand Hotel in Milan. A curtain divided the room, behind which we erected the recording apparatus and laid out the wax discs ready for receiving the sound. On the other side, so with Caruso, was an upright piano set up high on packing cases. Ah, that's interesting, because when we looked at pictures of the gramophone recording studio in, in Maiden Lane, which yeah. per, not purpose-built, but it was fitted out as a permanent. Uh, yes. There's actually, the pianos are raised on a, on a wooden on, instrument. On, a, on wheels. But this is them on tour. These are the guys yes. on tour. So they're using the packing cases that the recording equipment come and then uh, put the piano on top of it. On top of, of that. Yeah, interesting. Um, now, the piano had its sounding board facing a bell-shaped metal horn suspended five feet from the floor. Do you think that's to send the acoustics across the room to make it sort of to, to fill the room with piano sound? I mean, why would they do that? What put put lift the piano up? Oh no! Why would they? Why would they put the piano soundboard facing a bell-shaped metal horn? I don't understand. Or oh, is that a recording horn? I, I, I think that's the recording horn. Yeah. So I think they're just trying to they're trying to get the the piano up at the same sort of height as, as, the, as the voice. voice. Is that right? And right. they're trying to create a soundboard oh, around sorry, it to right, pump yes. it through yeah. the, 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 the horn. Extraordinary. I mean, I mean the clarity. Again, but, but, yeah, but, totally he's wrong. But practical. But the, but the clarity of that voice was, was something else, wasn't it? It was amazing. Yeah, I, and, and it had drama to it. It felt like he was on stage. So he's obviously a, a natural performer. I think they did, they, there's a really nice description of... Of um, how he sounded. Yeah, do you want to... Yeah. Um, the items, so the songs... Yeah were all about two and a half minutes to three minutes long. This ten is Fred's songs. That's ten songs, doing, yeah. one after the other. And, you know, it's quite a 
strain on the voice. Ten, yeah. that's 30 minutes of singing. Particularly when lunch is, is <laughs> When lunch is, is, waiting. Is, is waiting. His pasta's <laughs> getting cold. And, um, the ice cream about three minutes long. And after, uh, one after the other, as fast as we could, this is Fred, we put the waxes on the machine and Caruso poured the fresh gold of that beautiful voice. I, I love... Isn't that a lovely description? Poured the fresh gold of that beautiful voice. Go on. I mean, how, how many singers could you, re- you use that same description for? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. He was in the good humour of robust youth and success waited for him whichever way we choose to, sorry, oh. whichever way he chose to turn. And again, a lovely all that potential. Yeah. How wonderful. And Fred, as far as that goes, we were in the same condition in those days. Yeah. You know, he's part of he, he, he he's writing his own myth here, Fred, isn't he? When he Well Fred would be in his twenties at this point. In fact, he'd be a year or two younger than yeah. I think it'd be 27, 28, and, and Caruso's 29. But the certainty he has, he, he said, it seemed that we could not make mistakes, no matter what risks we ran. That, this kind of arrogance of youth, isn't it? All that, all that belief. Because yes. he's writing this 40 years later. Yeah. Yes. I think it's a good thing to, to wrap up. Um, this is his brother, who also, uh, I'm not sure he wrote a full book, but he certainly wrote a few articles. Um, and But again, this is recalled 15 years later, so towards the end of the First World War. We were so afraid that something might happen to the delicate material on which Caruso's voice had been recording that we dare not trust it in transit except in our own arms. And we carried these originals all the way from Milan. Wow. So I think what, what would happen with some others was that they would be packed up They'd in a pack case and They'd pack them and ship them, wouldn't they? Um, to Hanover, because they were pressed in Hanover then, That's right, they? yeah. Um, so you've got to get... I mean, think of the logistics. So this is the 11th of April... They make the recordings. Mm. Then they've got to get from Milan to Hanover. Mm-hmm. The records then have to be pressed and then shipped. To and they've London. got to make the they've got to make the the um, the negatives and the, and the, yeah. you know so they've got to be stamped. Yeah. And then and then made. Yeah. And then fourteenth of May they're on sale in London. So All labelled up. Yes, that's that is. Hang on, how many days in April? Thirty. <laughs> so there's thirty three days from recording to in the shops, and that's. I mean that nowadays, or, or pre-streaming, pre these, you know, the, this trend for immediate releases, there'd be months, wouldn't there? Months, years, years. <laughs> Artwork, packaging, mixing, mastering. Absolutely, get the overdubs. story right. Yeah, all of that. Um, but they were they were concerned, so they literally fled to Hanover with these yeah. ten zinc master discs, knowing that they'd have to sell no fewer than two thousand copies to make their hundred quid back. I mean, that's risky, isn't it? Absolutely, but it, it, it's it's where they were. They were flying the um, the kind of what, what, you know those biplane. They're like in a recording. They're like in a biplane. Yes, they're the, these scary. You know, they're, they're they're really the forefront of this new industry. This is a startup. It's they're learning how to do stuff. Everything's got to happen quickly. And um, and in so many ways, this was this this whole situation with Caruso. Kicked, a, a kicked open the door, but B sort of set a set a template, didn't it, for for the music industry? It, it's such for, a moment of the music industry changing because when he got what what happens? Caruso comes to London, it's a huge success, and guess what? His records the sold. album's out, you know. And what what happens to all the other performers that that are playing there? The, well, because of the word of mouth about Caruso, the uh, seven other soloists at, at Covent Garden that summer. Start vying for you know they approach the the gramophone company say look can you record us too please yeah. so effectively this this is the change this is yeah this flipped it this flipped it from a can see there's a money to be made yeah in in um, and this isn't some weird technology this is actually the future 
Yeah. So it seven. Great. Yeah, yeah. Seven recording artists. Um, yeah, were, were recruited within very short order, and almost overnight contracts had, had been signed, yeah. so that they themselves could record. So it's, it's changed from when Fred first arrives in London. He sets up in in uh, Maiden Lane. He goes next door into or three doors up to Rules Restaurant, finds performers who've been on at the Opera House or singing in the West End, slips them a drink or two. They all get pissed and go and next door. And then press gangs them and takes them yeah. next door to To, to this weird experimental... And they, they fought their way in, but now they're trying to... F- they're, try- they're, 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 they're queuing up. To, they're queuing up to record. And this is over, this is, this is over th- a period of about three and a half, four years. Yeah. So it goes from, it goes from sort oh, of no, slightly weird, weird start-up to, thanks to Caruso and his Kane twirling and his wonderful voice, to, uh, to becoming a viable... A viable industry. It's incredible, isn't it? This is the moment the modern recording industry is born. I think. Absolutely. absolutely. In, a, in a hotel in Milan. Sad news is... Yes, yeah, there's a little wrinkle, isn't there? That, that this that wonderful story... It is, is almost certainly not true. <laughs> it, it, the element that's not true, that yes, the uh, Caruso was courted and, and negotiated with, and recorded in and the, the recordings happened. You know, this isn't some fake and, musician. And, and, here. and in in May they were launched, and Caruso became the first great recording star. All of that happened. But Fred's story about him asking for permission to record and getting the six worder back—it's it, not true. Sadly. We don't think it's true, and it's a gr- it is a fantastic story. But as mentioned, he wrote his diaries what a good three decades later. I think 43 or 44, so and, yeah. 1943-44, he's got apparently no access to the company records because it's during the war and the Hayes factory has been converted to munitions rather yep. than uh, records. I'm sure the um, records have been put off into storage for that period. So he's, he's, he's an old chap at this point, approaching 70, he's writing his memoirs and he's looking back on his gilded youth. Thinking, yeah, that... that we got that telegram. Yeah. But unfortunately, you've done some digging, haven't I've you? I've done, done some digging. There's actually a guy who's written a fantastic um, piece. There's a guy who's written this fantastic piece in the ARSC journal, um, and it's called Caruso's First Recordings, Myth and Reality. Here we go. Here we go. Um, his name is S.P. Martland, right. and it's a fantastic article. It's available on the web. Um, so it's Caruso's first recordings, Myth and Reality, talking about this. And to be fair to him and to Fred, there's no definitive proof that it, this didn't happen. Um, <laughs> but Martland struggles to find any definitive proof it did that happen. That it did. And he also, interestingly, he, he talks about the structure of the gramophone company and that, that actually the recordings made in Italy by this point would have been funded commissioned and funded and negotiated by the Italian company rather than Fred. So not Fred was, himself. Fred was coming over as, as, as the recording producer rather than the negotiator. So Michaelis is likely to have been involved in the negotiations, probably with Fred, uh-huh. um, but the money would have been routed through Michaelis rather than direct to Fred. And Martland has found, he's gone to um, the EMI archive at Hayes, mm-hmm. um, a fabulous place. <laughs> um, and he's found telegrams from Kellis to the head office saying, we need money for Caruso. For Caruso. Can I have £100 for Caruso? I think he mentions somebody else that he wants some money for. Probably the, prob- probably his, his, his well, colleague, wasn't it? It could well have been Pinto. The, the Amelia Pinto, yeah. Geisberg needed some money for 
his travel expenses, expenses yeah. and, and there was another project that he asked for some money for. So, and they sent that money. And they sent that money and, and accepted no. So that so, looks like Fred probably never did it. What a shame, because that's is. a... I mean, never let the truth get in the no. way of a, of a good story, because that is a classic, and, isn't it? And, and the, the other thing that, that doesn't stack up logically is that the point I made earlier was that William Barry Owen and Alfred Clark, to the directors... Oh, they were there. Were in Milan. Yes. When, when Caruso is... Um, seen for the first time and they all fall in love with it. So why would Fred telegram London and be told when his no, bosses are his with, bosses are in Milan? Oh no. It just all feels up. I, I I think Martland's on onto a good story. I think he's onto here. a good thing. It's a self aggrandizing But story. let listen let's not. Let's end on a high note, excuse yes. the pun. The recordings still exist. Yes. They were recorded on the day for a hundred pounds and they went on to be absolute classics. Yeah. And it would be a shame for uh, for for this for this story to be any less yeah. uh, incredible just because of Fred's little white lie. Agree? Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a, a white lie oh, either. It's, a li- it, it's just a. It's, it's, when you're in your seventies, looking back to your twenties, I'm yes. sure things that you think happened didn't quite happen the way you remember them. I'm in my fifties. I know a lot of things from my twenties and tens didn't teens didn't happen the way <laughs> I remember them. <laughs> Men would place tricks on people. It certainly does. It's not does. necessarily a lie, I think. It certainly does. Um, um, and, but even if it is, you know, it, it again speaks to that story of this is the this is the birth of the modern recording this industry. This was the big pra- bang. Practically every major recording artist since has mythologies and things that aren't necessarily true around them, like that poor guy that was blamed for not signing the Beatles, Dick Rowe. Oh, well, it's Decker, far he... more complicated than that. Yes, at Decca. Yes. Um, well, they I got think... the Stones in the end, didn't they? So. Um, Several, of, you know, yeah, yeah. and Bowie, but also it's far more. It's not he wasn't the guy necessarily that said no. It, it, it was far more complicated. And um, read Mark Lewison's book, um, tuned in if you want the full story. Well, on there that. you go. But on there the, you the go. biography of the Beatles, um, this is just another myth. It's another myth, but it doesn't matter. No, let's end with another Caruso, shall we? Yes, please. This is the sound of the hound. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sound of the Hound. If you'd like to see the show notes, which contain links to some of the things we've been talking about in this episode, please go to thesoundofthehound.com. Select podcasts when you're there, and you'll find a page of notes for this episode. Sound of the Hound is a podcast from the EMI Archive Trust. Many of the recordings and artefacts we talk about in this series of podcasts are housed by the Trust. If you'd like to know more about the EMI Archive Trust, go to emiarchivetrust.org. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be much appreciated. Thank you.